we feel bad about this, but uh, can we put you in the broom closet? Right? <laughs> so they put me in a broom closet with the bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. We're kind of doing a double dip on this show. Uh, we have one of the best college players of all time. He's a Heisman Trophy winner, but he's also in the rarefied air of the fewest people ever to pull off a double dip, uh, going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame and winning the Heisman Trophy. I'm talking about Touchdown Timmy, which was his name at Notre Dame, Hall of Famer Tim Brown. Sit back and relax and listen to his story from growing up in Dallas and the unusual recruiting visit he had when he went to SMU. You're going to enjoy it. First of all, just delighted to be talking to one of the greatest band members in the history of Woodrow Wilson High School <laughs> in Dallas, Texas, and Tim Brown. Like, I, did, I did not know that. In doing my research, I did not know you were a band member at Woodrow Wilson before you were a football player. Uh, yeah, I, uh, a couple of years ago, they gave me an honorary band membership type deal for the rest of my life or whatever. So, yeah, a lot of people don't know I played the uh, percussions in the marching band, um, you know, during the varsity uh, games my freshman year. So pretty interesting. Yeah. But you did that because your mom wouldn't let you play football. Yeah, well, I was playing, but she didn't know. That that's right. a real that's a real story. <laughs> she didn't know anything about it. She thought that uh so my sophomore year when I actually had made the varsity team and I was playing on Thursday and Friday nights, she thought I was still in the marching band. Yeah. And crazy me, I had an incredible uh first month of the season. They named me sophomore sensation and my name ended up in the paper and all her friends were calling her and she thought I had did something bad. So she was all over me, like, What did you do? What did you do? I said, Mom, you probably need to look at the sports page. So uh, yeah. there she saw my face with uh, sophomore sensation labeled by it. And she really found out about the you not playing in the band because the band director called her and said, he's not coming to practice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I was trying to stay in the band, obviously not the marching band, but I wanted to stay right. in the band. But it got to the point where it, it just wasn't going to work out. So, um, you know, so I, I had to move on. And, and uh, she didn't like that at all. You know, because I played the drums in our church. Yeah. Uh, so she thought that if I got away from doing it in high school, in the band, that I wouldn't want to do it. You know, so it, it was one of those type things. Listen, I'm not saying you wouldn't have been the next, uh, you know, uh, uh, great band drummer of all time, right. you know. But, like, I think you might have made the right choice in going with football. You know, I, I think she finally, after I was inducted to the Hall of Fame, said I made the right choice. So she, <laughs> she finally came around after 25, 30 years. It, it took her a while to get there. But it took her a while, there. but she got there. That's yeah. that's the most important thing. And the other thing we should point out is that you went to the same high school as Davey O'Brien, for whom the Davey O'Brien Award is named right. in college, which goes to the uh, the best quarterback uh, in, in the land. And when you won your Heisman, which we'll get to that a little bit later, Woodrow Wilson High School became the first high school anywhere with two Heisman Trophy winners. Yeah, it, it became the first public high school. I think yeah. uh, Matt Leiner went to modern day like for one year. We yeah. don't count that, right? No, <laughs> but, uh, no. Uh, yeah, no, man, it was uh, pretty, pretty fantastic. You know, I, I had met uh, David O'Brien's son because Mr. O'Brien passed away in, in the late 70s, I believe. Uh, but I had met his son, looks just like him, 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, I mean, spit an image of him. Um, and uh, and we actually had a little relationship before, you know, all this Heisman stuff came along. So. Uh, so it was great to be able to uh, connect with the family and 
And uh, for a couple of years, I was a part of the Davy O'Brien Award that they um, they gave out over in Fort Worth. So when you were younger, what was your passion? Was it music or did you always love football? What, what was the thing that really grabbed you as a kid? Uh, I love music, man. I really did. You know, I, I love playing the drums. I, I still play a mean tambourine in church now. You know what I mean? So um, it, it was just something that was really a big part of me. Uh, I did sports, man, because my friends did sports, right? They yeah. played football, played basketball, ran track. I played football, played basketball, ran track. Uh, I never thought – I knew I had the ability to make people miss on the football yeah. field and, you know, maybe jump a little higher, even though I was a short guy. I was only 5'9", 5'10", 5'9", 5'10", in high school. But I could dunk a basketball. I could block shots. I could do all that stuff. I mean, I knew I had talent, but, I mean, I never thought about Notre Dame – you know, Heisman Trophy, 17 years in the NFL type, type, type talent. And, yeah. uh, you know, so it was really just to have fun, man. But my passion was really in music. So when did you sort of realize that, okay, I enjoy playing music and, and I'll probably do that for my entire life. I might be able to be really good at this football thing. Yeah, well, you know, when, when Notre Dame came knocking my, my junior year, um, you know, my whole family was like, what is going on? I mean, you know, yeah. Timmy did what? He Who wanted him to do what? You know, they, they <laughs> no one can figure it out because, um, you know, it wasn't a deal where everybody came to my high school football games. We were horrible, right? We were 425 yeah. and one. You know, nobody wanted to come see us play, you know? I mean, yeah. uh, but, you know, all of a sudden when Notre Dame came knocking, we knew that there was something there. The, at worst – it looked like there was an opportunity to get a great education, right? If right. not at Notre Dame, then at some other college. And, and you know, Trey, my, my family, man, that's what they were focused on. You know, when I when I, when I walked out the door, uh, they had to Notre Dame, they'd say, hey, look, boy, there's no future in football for you. You go up yeah. there and get that education and get on back home. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, that's just the type of family I came from. My mom and dad had literally had to drop out of a high school, pick cotton back in the day, you know, Louisiana, you know, my mom got pregnant at a very early age, so she never went back until she got older. My dad never went back. So they wanted, and all my sisters and my brother had, you know, or were in college at the time or out of college. And uh, so that's that was the only focus was for me to get a college education. Well, you certainly got a great education at Notre Dame, but you had to choose. Like, if you were going down a murderer's row of colleges to choose from in the 80s, like the, the schools that were interested in you, not only Notre Dame, Nebraska, Oklahoma, SMU, and Iowa. And I'm just curious, how much of a draw was SMU, obviously, being from Dallas? And I went to Baylor in the early 80s, okay? Yeah, so yeah. I, I was there for yeah. the entire SMU experience. <laughs> like right, I, right. I, li I lived it in real time. Right, uh, right. You know, what, what they were going through in the, the Polo Pony Express and all that kind of stuff. What was, what was it about uh, Notre Dame that, that drew you over, like, playing in your hometown? Um. You know, look, I, I have to be, have to be honest with you and say this: that you know, if not for what was going on at SMU, yeah. I think I would have ended up at SMU. Uh, I, I'm a mama's boy, boy, and you know, going 1,200 miles away did not was not ap uh, appetizing to me at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I think you know, it really came down to Notre Dame of nowhere. You know, I, I I got a letter from Penn State like really late in the game. No, no teams out in on the West Coast really recruited me at that time. I don't think they were really recruiting Texas at that time. I had a ton of family in Southern California, so yeah. it would have been very interesting if I would have got a letter from Southern California. You know, 
uh, if I would have you know chosen to go there or not. But <clears throat> it really came down, you know, my brother, he's eight years older, uh, was this big Subway alumni Notre Dame guy. He knew everything about the school. Uh, you know, I had never heard of Notre Dame and he knew absolutely everything about it. So he was telling my mom and dad, you know, hey, this is a great education school. If they want him a year from now, this is where he needs to go. I had to go to a school computer or whatever and look it up to find out where Notre Dame was. I had no clue where it was, you know. So and then when I found out, I was like, dude, I, I want no parts of going 1,200 miles away from home. You know, it's funny you say that because you're the second person that I've had on this pod that like didn't understand Notre Dame. Jerome Bettis, when he yeah. was being recruited, he thought it was Notre Dame in France when he got a letter. He thought <laughs> he thought he got a letter from the cathedral uh, in Paris. That's what he thought. So so like as bad as you didn't know, it wasn't as bad as what Jerome right, didn't know. Just so bad. you know, I knew it was in the United States. I didn't know that much, but no, man, look, it it. Um, it, it was a uh, unique situation, no doubt about it. And, um, you know, the way Notre Dame, you know, found out about me, that whole thing, it was they came to recruit another kid, Dante Jones, who played 10 years at middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears. Yeah. And, um, you know, that night I had four touchdowns. I played 27 years of football. The only, name, only game I scored four touchdowns is when Notre Dame came to recruit somebody else. You know, yeah. so it, it's, a, it's a very, very, you know, I like to say touching story, but, you know, I don't know what other people may say. Uh, timing is everything. Let's just no put doubt. it that way. No yeah, absolutely. And for people that may not understand what we're talking about with SMU, like SMU was a national program that had sort of come out of nowhere under Ron mm -hmm. Meyer, you know, Eric mm -hmm. Dickerson, Craig James, Lance McElhaney, all these great players, TD Briggs, Kit Case, all these defensive studs. And then they were in the middle of one of the greatest scandals of all time in terms of just they had literally a payroll to pay their players, yeah. which now with NIL, I guess you can do. But it was right, right. really illegal <laughs> in the 80s. And they 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 became the first and only school to get the death penalty. The program was decimated. So where in the process of that investigation uh, were they when they started recruiting you and how much did that sort of hang over uh, your I mean decision? Trey, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story that I'm, I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly before. I, I really don't. Um, so I'm walking home from school, right, after basketball practice, right? Yeah. My junior year, after basketball practice, I'm walking home. And my high school principal, um, he ran the, he went to SMU and he ran the clocks. He was still running the, the clocks on, for football games uh, for SMU. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, he he swoops me up, right? I mean, yeah. literally, like, because I walk home, we walk home through, like, a little, you know, foresty area, whatever, and I don't know where he came from, man, but all of a sudden, he was there. He he takes me directly over to SMU, right? Of course, I'm not supposed to be there, but I'm there. Right. I'm sitting in there talking to the coaches and da-da-da, you know, all the coaches got me at a table, and they got Kentucky Fried Chicken. I have to mention that because that's part of the story. Um and all of a sudden, one of the the secretary comes in and she whispers something in Collins' ear, Coach Collins. And he, the blood just leaves his face, right? You could just tell yeah. something just happened. And so he, you know, gets his coaches together and, and they, uh, you know, they're all like sweating bullets, man. They say, Tim, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we feel bad about this, but uh, can we put you in the broom closet, right? <laughs> so they put me in a broom closet with the bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> and and come to find out, one of the one of the uh, uh, sports uh, casters here in Dallas, Channel Eight, 
Dale Hansen, who was yeah. dude, doing a big story, he was sitting there interviewing him, and they were asking him, would you ever illegally recruit anybody? And I'm in the closet with a bucket of chicken, and I hear Colin say, I would never illegally recruit <laughs> That's that's when I got the idea that what they were, I, I had no I was 16 years old Trey I had no like, yeah. no clue man you know I my my family really didn't know what was happening at the time and it's when I told my brother that story he he freaked out you know what I mean and um, went to Woodrow told the high school and uh, so I mean that, that pretty much my mom and dad because really because of my brother because they really didn't know much about it um, they weren't going for it man so that almost eliminated SMU on the spot. That's a remarkable story because for anybody that sort of lived through that experience in the 80s, Dale Hansen's interview with the recruiters and some of the guys at SMU where he calls them out and has their signatures on these payments to players. And and they're like, well, I guess that must be my signature. I don't know how it got there. I don't know how that money got it. You were literally in a broom closet being illegally recruited while this interview was going on. While this this interview is going on. And I I hear all the questions and – and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was wild and woolly, man. And, uh, you know, uh, my my family, man, look, we could have taken a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you know, not just yeah. from SMU. Everybody was offering something, you know. And, um, and, you know, my mom and dad, they just weren't going for it because my brother kept saying, you don't want Timmy to have that kind of legacy. Of course, we didn't yeah. know, you know, foot, you know, what was going to happen. But, you know, uh, you know, when we look back on this, we don't want to say, oh, wow, you know, we took that. $10,000 from that, you know, one school, you know, we didn't want to be talking like that. And, you know, look, I, I was just doing what my parents and my big brother said to do. Uh, and, you know, thankfully, I think, uh, I think we made the right decisions. That, that, that's, that's one of the craziest stories I think I've ever heard um, <laughs> in the closet. You can't make well, that Dale, up. Bro. It's no, hard to make that up. <laughs> no, man. Like Dale Hansen, like that was, that was the thing that brought the thunder down on yeah. SMU and, yeah. and you were in the, you, you were in the right there, closet right there to make Oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, I don't know if we're going to top that for the rest of the show, <laughs> but we're going to keep going. Uh, so, so you get to Notre Dame and you know, up, Dallas is a warm place. They, they get snow every once in a while. You know, I can remember being at Baylor and snow would come through and you would get eight inches and the next day it was just gone. It was just yep, evaporate. Yep. What was the transition like for you? Your first fall slash winter in South Bend, Indiana, coming from Dallas, Texas. Yeah, you know, um, we we and I, I tell my wife this all the time. She's from California. You know, we've been married twenty five years now, and you know, we don't get the snow in Dallas like we used to. And just just so happened the other night there was a uh, there was a thing on TV where they were talking about back in the late seventies and early eighties how much snow Dallas used to get back in time. And I'm telling her that's yeah. what I'm telling you. We used yeah. to get snow, you know, on a regular basis, yeah. but. You know, we measured our snow in inches, yeah, not in feet. <laughs> and you know, the first, the first uh, snow we got at Notre Dame, Notre Dame, they said there's going to be four feet of snow. And okay. I literally thought, I literally thought, well, they just made a mistake. I mean, because yeah. no one can get four feet of snow. That's yeah. impossible. And then you wake up the next day, and there's literally four feet of snow on on the ground, and you can't, you can't, you can barely walk. You know, they hadn't. Uh, they hadn't uh, cleared out the pathways, and, and it's like, what is going on? But it really wasn't the snow that got me. It was the cold because, the yeah, that wind. I mean, in that St. Joe Valley, man, the temperatures get down to 5 or 10, 10, 10 degrees below zero. 
and you walk in and you get a rock jaw because it's so cold. Yeah. I mean, that freaked me out the first time that happened, right? You know, so yeah, it was a huge adjustment, man, and and um, and I wasn't ready for it. I think I had a little um, those those uh, what do they call them? The jackets they used to call them Lords of London or whatever, with the yeah. the belt that goes around along, you yeah, know. Yeah. That's the detectives used to wear. I forget what they call them, but um, trench coats. Uh, and that's all I had, you know. And yeah. uh, so I, I quickly had to get more clothes in order to make it through the winter. Well, you made it, and you you made it a very successful year. You set a, a freshman record with what twenty eight touchdowns, a uh, twenty eight catches rather. Uh, your your uh, your freshman year. What was it like being there? Because this was sort of the when Notre Dame was sort of reasserting itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and Notre Dame was back on the scene and th that there came those classic games, obviously with the University of Miami, that became sort of the stuff of legend. What was it like being there at Notre Dame when Notre Dame sort of became a thing again? Yeah. Well, you know, when when Coach Faust left after our sophomore year, we knew whoever came in was going to be better. Now, I love Coach Faust. I mean, obviously yeah. he got me there. Uh, and, you know, he still comes around now. And, you know, you can't tell but to love the guy because he had – you know, he had the best, the university's best in, uh, in mind. It just didn't work out for him. But he was a bit over his head. And, you know, yeah. even as a young young kid, you know, 18 years old in college, you realize that, you know, this coach is over his head. Um, so we knew we were going to be a better team. Um, you know, I knew nothing about Coach Holtz. I really knew nothing about him. And um, But we quickly found out that this this guy was different. You know, he talked differently. Yeah, he, he he's a Catholic guy. He loves Notre Dame. He loves all that. But when it comes to football, man, I mean, he was over the board when it when uh, uh, as far as how he wanted to present yourself and things of that nature in the football field. I never forget our big uh, center, big bulky guy, 6'3", 295 pounds, Chuck Lanza. Uh, Lou walked in the, in the meeting room, and the meeting room was so small back then. Literally, you know, we could put our feet on the on the stage. And Chuck has his, had his feet up, and Coach looked at him, and Chuck looked at him, and Coach kicked his feet off the stage. And uh, everybody was like, uh-oh, <laughs> this is different. You know, Coach Faust would have never done that, man. But, you know, look, we knew right away. The first thing that Coach Ho said to us was that the University of Notre Dame was going to win a championship in three years, right? Yep. So you got seniors and juniors going – one, one, two, one. <laughs> that that ain't adding up, Coach. That ain't yeah. adding up. But he said the only way we're going to win this championship is if the upperclassmen buy in. Because if you guys don't set the table, then it won't happen. And man, that was a difficult thing to to do, Trey. Because we wanted to win the championship. You know what I mean? Yeah. How can we win it now, Coach? And yeah. and uh, but man, we literally had meetings about it. You know, the upperclassmen. We said, look. I mean, this could be part of our legacy, too. I mean, they may win it. And, of course, they end up winning the championship three years the later. Very, the very next year after you graduated. Yeah, after I graduated, they won the championship. So, uh, you know, but you feel good that you helped set the table uh, for what uh, for what happened there for, you know, eight, nine, ten years after, uh, after we left. Listen, uh, as far as nicknames go, Touchdown Timmy is a pretty good one, right? Like that, that if, if, if your nickname in college is Touchdown Timmy, then that means you, you know you're doing something right. What was, what was your favorite part of being uh, part of that sort of rejuvenation and that Notre Dame experience? Was there a particular game that you really enjoyed more than any other? Well, you know, I think for us, you know, just to be able to compete 
uh, with Michigan and Michigan State. You know, we always open up the season with those guys. Uh, right. You know, we all we you know I, my whole four years at Notre Dame, we beat SC every year. Um, so that was um, you know that was not a big thing, but you know it felt like we were winning differently though. It felt like felt like we were winning even more more easily now, you know, than we were before, you know, because everything made sense. What we were doing offensively made sense. What we were doing defensively made sense. Uh, you know, but I think for me, you know, um, I had a big game. I think it was at Michigan uh, where I made a couple of plays uh, early in the early in the year, uh, first game of the year. And that just sort of, you know, because Coach Holtz and I had, had this running thing, right, where he, you know, he had told me that he thought I could be the best player in the country. And I told him he had the wrong guy. You know what I mean? That I came in to get an education. I'm going to go back home, marry my high school sweetheart, be a deacon in the church, and uh, I'm going to be good. And uh, so he said, son, you can have all that, but you're going to be great also. And uh, so he, he, t- he kept telling me things are going to happen for you that you're not used to. And he was sort of preparing me for that. So when I had that big game in Michigan, you know, now he's like, he said that was going to happen. It didn't happen. So so now you want to go and talk to him again and see what else is going to happen in the future, you know. And so I think, man, you know, just having that big – because I had never had a game that big, you know, where, you know, um, we won a game on the road like that. And and uh, it, it just worked out that everybody was looking at Tim Brown. Tim Brown had made the play, had done this and done that. And all of a sudden now, you know, it was looking like I was somebody to be reckoned with in college football. Well, you certainly were. And, you know, you were a finalist for the Heisman Trophy in 1987. You end up winning it. You become the first wide receiver ever uh, to to win the Heisman Trophy. What were your expectations going into that weekend about what was going to happen? You know, one of my, my teammates said something, you know, and only a Notre Dame guy can come up with this, I guess. But he said, Tim, you're going to win the Heisman because – at worst case, you're going to be second place in everybody's ballot, on everybody's ballot. Yeah. No one can vote you, you know, if somebody votes you worse than second, then they shouldn't be voting. So right. Gatson Green may win out in the West Coast, but you're going to be second. You know, Donnie McFerrison may win on the East Coast, but you're going to be second. Well, they're going to be third and fourth in some of these, these deals, but you're going to be second. You're going to win the Midwest. I mean, he literally broke this thing down to the point where it's like, Hey, Brandy, that really makes sense. But then it's like, no, 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 I can't, I can't think that, right? I can't think that. Yeah. I can't believe that. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I remember Jim Nance came up to me and said, hey, no matter what happens, you know, you had an incredible year. And I was like, dang, I didn't, I didn't win it. Then James yeah. Brown came up to me and said, hey, you really deserve to be here. And I'm like, well, maybe I did. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's literally, you know, that's how you're going. I mean, you know, you have a conversation with one guy, I want it. You have a conversation with another guy, you didn't win it. So it was, uh, so my expectations were all over the place, man. And, uh, you know, of course, they didn't do it like they did it now. I do it then right. like they do it now. It, it was lickety split. You know, we got up yeah. there in five minutes, they made the announcement. Yeah. So when they did make the announcement and you heard your name, what was the first thing that went through your mind? Um, I, I just couldn't believe it, man. You know, it's probably the worst speech I ever given gave in my life. I didn't know what to say, how to say it. I could barely get words out. I think I thanked my mom, my parents and coach Holtz and that was it. I got off the stage, but, uh, you know, I, I think you sort of realize though pretty quickly that at least your name has changed. You know, I don't know about your life, but because now you'll never be Tim Brown anymore. You always be introduced as, Heisman Trophy winner Tim Brown, you know, and I think yeah. um, at least I realized that much. And uh, so uh, it was it was an overwhelming time, man, because for a kid who went to college 
on a football scholarship, not, you know, not really, you know, understanding uh, what, what he had uh, and to end up with a Heisman Trophy was a, was a huge leap, huge leap. Well, listen, clearly you made the right choice uh, at Notre Dame. Clearly it worked out for you. And as many people knew you for your collegiate success, obviously there's a whole nother deal and a whole nother level of this when you go into the NFL. So why don't we take our first break here? When we come back on this episode of Half Forgotten History, we'll get into the NFL experience for Tim Brown, or as he's known, Touchdown Timmy. Stay with (laughs) us. We're coming right back. You know, you open up a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter and you're opening more than doors. You're unlocking potential to do your own thing, be your own boss, and live out your own dreams. With 16 body types, your choice of a gas or diesel engine, and thousands of ways to customize, a Sprinter van is capable and versatile enough to help you drive your ambitions as far as you want to take them. So go ahead, unlock your potential inside a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter. All right, everybody, I want to tell you about an app I use quite frequently, and it's Zelle. Look, whenever you're out on the golf course, you're playing with your buddies, the round is over, you've either won or you've lost, and it's time to either collect your rewards or give away your punishment. Using the Zelle app is so simple and easy. You don't have to reach into your wallet, look for a 20 or a 5, and make sure you had the right bills. You open up the Zelle app, and you either tell people, I kicked your butt today, give me my rewards for kicking your butt, or you can quickly and less humiliatingly just send them the money and you don't have to dwell on it. Either way, whether you win that round of golf or you lose, Zelle makes the transition of the funds so much easier and simpler and everybody is a little happy. All right, back with Tim Brown on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So after college, you know, obviously you played very well and you have to think I'm going to have a career in the pros winning the Heisman Trophy. What were your expectations going into the 1988 draft? Um, You know, I knew one thing, Trey, that I thought that I could return punts and kickoffs in NFL day one. I really did. Yeah. I, I really felt like I had the ability to do that. I really felt like I was one of those guys born to return kicks and, and punts. But what I didn't know was if I could play receiver in NFL day one, simply because I don't know if you remember, but Terry Andresiak, our quarterback, got hurt in the Michigan game, yep. and Tony Rice had to come in. And he took over. Well, Tony couldn't hit the broad side of a barn, you know, from yeah. 10 yards away at that time, yeah. you know. And so we went to a wishbone offense. So I was literally for 10, 11, I ran, I was the wing back in the wishbone offense. Right. You know, so I hadn't been out running routes and things of that nature, you know. So uh, I just thought I, I needed a little bit of time, a little bit of time to uh, to learn the, the, re- the receiver position in the NFL. So we looked at it. You know, Marvin Dimoff was my agent. I said, look, Marvin, if Atlanta wants to take me number one overall, let's let's go do it, right? It's a lot of prestige along with going, you know, being a number one drafted guy, you know, overall. So we'll deal with it. But if they don't, you know, let's look at these teams, man. I think it was Kansas City, Cincinnati, Tampa Bay, Detroit were the four teams in between the Raiders and and, and Atlanta. And my whole deal was those four teams all needed a savior. You know, yeah. so that meant that I was have to come and play receiver day one. And I just didn't know that if I would be ready for that. Then you look at the Raiders and they got Marcus Allen. They got Bo Jackson. They got Todd yeah. Christensen. They got Mervin Fernandez. They got James Lofton, yeah. you know, and I just said to myself, that's the team I need to get to, because if I can get there, I will have time. You know, they're not going to come in and put me in front of James Lofton day one or Mervin Fernandez, you know, yeah. day one. So. 
Um, and that just worked out perfectly, man. I don't know what Marvin told those teams to get me there or if they really had interest in me or not. But um, to me, it worked out perfectly being able to uh, get to the Raiders because that gave me time. And plus, I had a guy like James Lofton, who was my roommate my rookie year, teaching me, you know, the game. And I don't know if I would have had that some other place, you know. So I was very fortunate, man. And, uh, you know, I had a chance to really – I ended up leading the team in receptions because I think Lofton got hurt. Mervin had some issues. Uh, but I ended up leading the team in receptions that year. But I think the first time – not I think, but the first time I touched the ball in the NFL, I returned a kick 97 yards for a touchdown. So, um, you know, that was, to me, proof that I could do in college or uh, the pros what I had done in college. And, and with all that sort of uh, tutoring and mentoring from Lofton, again, you, you couldn't have asked for a better guy – uh, when did you realize, okay, not only can I play wide receiver at this level, I can be really good at this level? Well, you know, my second year, Trey, I tore my knee up. You know, yep, so I, 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 my, I missed 15 games that year. Yep, so Only played one. I, 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 I tell people that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I got a chance to look at the game from inside out, right? You know, where I was in the meetings, but I didn't have to go play. So I can see what was being said in the meetings and what guys were doing on the field. I can come and watch the, the, the game, you know, tape from the game the day before and see what was happening and not be accountable because I wasn't playing. Right. So, right. so I was learning so much, man. And um, so I really felt like going into the 90s season, I was a better receiver mentally than I was, you know, uh, my rookie year. Uh, but I, I don't think it really kicked in until the end of 91 early 92 is when I felt like I, you know, I felt like I was being caged up then because the Raiders, you know, still didn't, they weren't playing me a lot. And, um, you know, so I felt like, man, it, I'm ready. It's, you know, it's time to go. And yeah. it took Mervin Fernandez getting hurt in early in 92 uh, for me to start. And I, you know, I started then and, you know, started every game until I left the Raiders in 04. Um you know, some of those names that you just mentioned, we talked about Lofton in the Hall of Fame and, and, and you mentioned some of those other guys, but you sort of, we sort of glossed over Bo. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen a better athlete in my life than Bo Jackson. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just an observation from someone yeah. watching him. Yeah. What was it like being a teammate of his and just seeing this specimen, for lack of a better term, that felt like he could do anything he wanted whenever he wanted? I mean, you know, people ask me about Bo, and literally the only thing you can say is freaky. I mean, it was just, you know, just a freak of nature, man. I mean, look, I I came into the league running four three five, four three three, yeah. four three five, which it's getting it right. I mean, that's that's, that's, that's moving, that's, that's moving. moving. And uh, so I had never been on a team where anybody was, you know, that much faster than me or fat, you know, even fat, even faster than me. You know, I was always the fastest guy on the team, I, I felt like. So we're playing Denver my my rookie year, and the play is 16 Bob Trio. If everything goes right, I come down and hit the safety. Bo comes right off my back, and, you know, we got a big game. Sure enough, play goes perfectly. I hit the safety. Bo comes off my back. My thought was, let's go catch Bo. Yeah. Let's go catch Bo. You know, <laughs> let's go. So I put my hand down, Trey. I'm digging, man. And Trey, I when I look up, it was cartoonish, man. How fast <laughs> he was pulling away from me, bro. And so I just ran off the field. And yeah. and I asked the guys, I was like, 
was I a bird or something? And they's yeah. like, dude, don't ever run behind Bo. Whatever you yeah. do, don't ever run, don't ever try and chase him. And uh, I remember the next day in film, my my coach kept saying, "That's one smart rookie right there. That's one smart rookie." <laughs> you know, I, it, it was man. Look, you just have never seen a man this big move as fast as he was capable of moving. It, if if he hadn't gotten hurt, is there any doubt in your mind he would have been a Hall of Famer? Oh, oh, yeah. Look, man. You know, I, look, Bo. Bo had, you know, he had the ability to turn it off and turn it on, turn it, turn it on and turn it off. When he turned it on, you you couldn't deal with him, man. If you made him mad and he wanted to run over somebody, you know, I mean, he he came in the, in the meeting room one day, and they were putting in plays, and you know, he stuttered at the time, yeah. and he got up and he said, "Bo Bo Bo don't need blocking. Bo don't need blocking." <laughs> And I was like, Bo, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. So they ended up devising a play, man. They call it Bo reverse left, Bo reverse right. And what they would do, they would pitch him the ball right, and the whole team will run to the right, right? And Bo will reverse and go back, and he would have no blocking, no blocking. And he would just run over people, run around people, run through people. And that was it, man. And, I mean, that was one of our more successful plays when he didn't have any blocking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I think people that didn't watch him play or just hear faint memories of him and didn't see it in real time, they'll look at his numbers and say, well, he only ran for 2,700 yards. He only had uh, 38 games in his career. But, like, they were – every one of those yards was punishment for yeah, everybody. No. That, I mean, it was punishment. It was punishment for everybody that was in his way. Look, I, I've seen Bo, you know, you know, we played in New Orleans my rookie year. He had two carries for 58 yards and didn't play a, another down after that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he would have put up 300 yards that day if he could have finished the game, uh, you know. And, you know, I see, saw him reverse the field versus Cincinnati and go for almost 85 yards and touchdown. You know, I'm running everybody. Look, th this guy was freaky, man. You know, there's no doubt in my mind, anybody's mind, people, you know, trying to find a way to put him in the Hall of Fame now. You know, I mean, yeah. that's that's how freakish he was. The injury to Bo in the in the uh, playoff went over Cincinnati. We, you know, the, we, nobody ever heard the words avascular necrosis in football before. Uh, as it happened in real time, did did everybody sort of understand how bad it was, or did, like how did how did that come to be? Because it it, did, it didn't look that terrible on the tackle. No. It just looked like his hip sort of was out of place a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as the game went on, and by the time the game was over, there was murmuring that he was going to have surgery the next day so we didn't think it was career ending we just thought yeah. okay Bo is done for the season and we're not going to have him for the AFC championship game I mean that right. was the only selfishly thing that we were thinking about at the time um so but as that week went on you know the rumors started to which weren't really rumors that his career could be over because of what had happened and I think by by the time we got on the plane on Friday um you know it was a different mood because not not just that our brother wasn't there, you know, our brother was done, you know, his career was yeah. over. And, uh, you know, so it was, so it was definitely a downer, man, trying to go play an AFC, AFC championship game and Marcus and Al Davis was into it. So they, they started Vance Mueller, you know, for a quarter, wouldn't let Marcus yeah. play. There's a lot of craziness going on. So, but uh, yeah, but it, it was uh, super sad, you know, to see his career into the way, the way it did for sure. By the way, that AFC Championship game was up in Buffalo, and it was yes. a freezing cold game. And yes. I, I, 
you don't need me to tell you what the score was, but for people nope. that are listening, it was a I 51 remember. to 51 to three. <laughs> like that was the Buffalo Bills K gun offense to perfection. Yeah. Like what, what, what are your memories of, of that game and how quickly you're like, wait, we're pretty good. What just happened? Yeah. Well, we, we were, you know, like I said, man, because of Bo and because of what was happening with Marcus and them not playing Marcus, we just didn't feel like the organization was really trying to win. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and um, so it's it's one of those things, Trey. When you get into a game like that, the minute things go bad, you sort of say, "Well, you, we sort of deserve it, right?" I mean, yeah. because if this is how you're going to treat your players, if this is what you're going to do, then you're really not trying to win anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it becomes a very frustrating thing, man. You plan for an opportunity to go to the the Super Bowl, and nobody's on the same page. The organization and the coaching staff is not. The players in the organization, the players, you know, it, it was just a damnable way to be trying to win uh, AFC championship. Yeah. And and that sort of belies a, a really interesting part of your professional career. I mean, you played 17 seasons for the Raiders, uh, it, whether it was in Oakland or, or with L.A., yet your relationship with Al Davis was always sort of complicated. Uh, how, mm-hmm. how would you describe that dynamic? Yeah, we had a relationship. That's what that's how I explain it to people. You know, it wasn't good, it wasn't bad. You know, when I when we saw each other, we spoke, uh, but we never in sixteen years with the Raiders, we never, we never uh, uh, went out to dinner. You know, I mean, never had a drink together. I never, I didn't drink, but never. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that type of relationship at all. It was a you know employee boss relationship. When I talked to him, it was mostly about. You know, uh, football, I mean, I don't remember one time him asking me about my family, you know, anything of that nature. Not that I needed him to or wanted him to, but it yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't really just that uh, – it wasn't that kind of relationship. So uh, – and, and a very interesting thing, if I can say this really quickly. Sure. You know, a lot of people criticized me because I didn't mention Al Davis in my Hall of Fame speech. And, you know, I, I, I can only think about all the stories, and I won't go into the stories – uh, how I know that he tried to derail my career. So for me, how can I get up and thank a man that tried to derail my career? And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, it took to God almighty brother to reveal to me that look, because Trey, if you look at when I scored touchdowns in the Raiders stadium, especially in Oakland stadium in the end zone where Al Davis sign was, yeah. I would always throw the ball at that sign. You know, I would always yeah. find a way to, and the the media picked up on it. And they kept saying, "Tim, is there anything to ah? Uh, uh, just a coincidence, you know, is what I would say." Yeah. But yeah. I, because I kept doing things, Trey, trying to get Al Davis, you know, his approval. You know, you make rookie of the year, that's not good enough. You come back, you make another Pro Bowl, that's not good enough. You know, you make the Pro Bowl as a receiver for the first time, that's not good enough. You lead the league in catches, you do this, you do that. All these things you're doing, and none of them are good enough for him. But I kept trying. And, you know, and it was just, you know, like God telling me, look, man, what if he would have ever taken you out to dinner? Maybe you don't keep maybe you don't keep going at that level up. Maybe you level off a little bit, you know? Yeah. So I, I think, man, everything happens for a reason. But uh so I had a chance to have a conversation with uh with Mark Davis in front of about four hundred people and uh where I gave his dad I, I believe was his just due in my for my career. And are you at peace with your relationship with the Raiders organization now? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Mark and I have, 
probably a better relationship than I had with his father. Uh, but uh, at the same time, yeah, you know what I mean? You know, we're not buddy, buddy, but at the same time, yeah. I know I can go there when I want to go there. And that's the only thing that's important to me. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So you came so close uh, in that AFC championship game uh, or getting to the Super Bowl, you get to the AFC championship game, you don't get there. And then finally, all those years later, like all those years later, you guys get back to the Super Bowl after the 2002 season uh, and you're taking on the Tampa Bay Bucks. Uh, what were your expectations going into Super Bowl 37? Well, we knew it was going to be tough because Gruden had just left the year before. Right. Uh, we knew we were running the exact same offense. And we knew audibling in the game was going to be impossible almost. Um, you know, uh, and most of what we had done that year was Rich Gannon looking at the offense, being able to bark out signals. And, you know, we, being a very veteran team, uh, was we were able to, to make that thing happen. But we knew that was going to not be an, an answer. So we came up and devised a plan that we thought would work. And, you know, that plan got pushed to the side, and that just really – you know, it's it's like going back to 1990. You you know you're going into a game where when things start to go bad, you start to say, well, this is how things are supposed to go when you're doing what you're doing as an organization. You know, so it, yeah. it was uh, it was a tough, tough, uh, tough, tough night for sure. Well, wh one of the things that I remember covering that Super Bowl was obviously the Barrett Robbins saga. And for people mm -hmm. that don't know, Barrett Robbins was the starting center for the Raiders, and he sort of went AWOL. Uh, and and got messed up uh, and was gone before the game. When did you guys start? When did you guys hearing? Hey, we we don't know where Barrett is. Um, well, we knew that uh, I knew that Barrett was upset after the Friday practice. Yeah, uh, me and him had went to Callahan and tried to get Callahan to not do what he was saying that he was going to do. Uh, so I knew Barrett was upset. Um, it was an early practice. We were done by twelve one. Um, so I, of course I knew, you know, being so close to Tijuana, a lot of guys had plans, but, uh, didn't know what Barrett's, what Barrett's plans were, but we didn't know until the next morning that he was, uh, you know, uh, not with us, uh, I would say, and, uh, which turned out to be a lie. And yeah. that was proven, uh, a couple of years later when I was told by the chaplain of, of the Raiders that, uh, he was with Barrett you know, the whole morning and, you know, Barry could have played in the game because they had him at the hotel by 10 o'clock in the morning, but, you know, decided not to, his punishment was he was not going to play in the game. So again, you know, um, are you really trying to win a football game when you, you don't, you're not letting your all pro uh, center, you know, play in the game, you know, it's a yeah. tough, tough situation. How much did that affect the, the outcome in your opinion? Oh, it was, look, Trey, if you watch, if you if you get film of the sideline of that game, there were literally times where we had players who were running towards Callahan, wanted, to, I mean, during the game, you know what yeah. I mean? And this is not at the end of the game. This is early in the game, you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, it, it was just a, it was just the worst situation. Uh, in the best of times, it was the worst situation. Let's put it that way. You, you're sitting there playing for the championship of the world, and you really know you have no shot. Uh, unless Tampa Bay just falls on their face, you really have no shot. And uh, of course, that didn't happen. No. So to get there and and have the opportunity and and not cash it in, how did you handle that sort of disappointment? You know, I think for me, you know, that was year fifteen for me, man. And yeah. at some point in my career, I had started saying, 
I just want the opportunity to play for the world championship. You right. know, I had played, you know, going back to Woodrow, you know, in junior high school, I had never played for any city championship. I'd never played for any kind of championship, you know, in college or whatever. So I wanted the opportunity, the opportunity to play for a championship, you know what I mean? And um, so I got that opportunity, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm settled with that. Of course, being that I played a, a, a team sport, the one thing that disappoints me more than anything is that I did I never won the championship. But as far as personally being able to play in that game, uh, I, I'm very proud that I had that opportunity. Yeah, I, I've always said this. I'm glad you said that because if people are honest about it, like you just want the chance. Like yeah. if, if it doesn't work out, you can say whatever. Right. It didn't work out. I, that's why I always say losing in the conference championship game is a hundred times worse yes. than losing the Super Bowl because yes. everyone like just give me the opportunity, and if if yes. it works out, great. And if we screw it up or I screw it up, fine. I had my chance, but to that's never right. get that chance, I think that eats at you more than losing the actual Super Bowl. Man, I tell you what, it you know, and then you know, for us, we lose by twenty five points or whatever. It's like ah, you know, yeah. it, you know, you knew the game was over early in the third quarter, so yeah. it wasn't like you know. And uh, funny, funny enough for me, um, my wife had our twins that night, so oh, wow. yeah, so I left the game. The Raiders had me a jet, and uh, I flew separately back. And two hours after the game, I'm holding two babies in my hand. So it ended up being a great night for me. So. Uh, it worked out well. It is funny that you say that, though, because uh, I, I tell, I'll tell you this great story, and I bet you can relate to it. Uh, I think it was Super Bowl nineteen. The Dolphins got their Dan Marino second year, and they got their asses kicked. Thirty-eight to sixteen was the final score. Okay, it was never even close. So Jimmy Cephalo, who was a friend of mine at the time, was a wide receiver for the Dolphins, mm-hmm. and uh, he was all despondent. He'd played eight years, and he thought, "Man, you know, this is it. We're done. You know, I'll never have another opportunity." And he was going to ride back to the hotel with Dan Marino. So he gets in the back of the car with Dan Marino, and Marino's got a cooler of beers in there, and he's got a beer in his hand, and, he, and the cephalo opens up the door and he gets in, and Dan looks at him with this big smile on his face and says, boy, did we get our asses kicked or what? You know, like, he was just like, it, was like, it wasn't even close, so it's not really a big thing, and, right, you know, right, right, and, and, right, right. And, and Jimmy was trying to tell him, dude, we may never get back here again, and it turns out that was the only Super Bowl Dan Marino ever played in his life. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's something, man. You know, I think for us um, – the only thing that would made it better, the loss better, is if we knew that we didn't beat ourselves. You know what yeah. I mean? If, a lot if of we turnovers. Have, if we ready to go and everybody's on the same page and we go out there and throw it on the field and we get our butt select, I think you can live with that. But I think yeah. the problem, the only things that we have, the only hang up, you know, when I talk to Jerry Reisman, he always brings us. He brings us up all the time because we know, we really believe that we had the team to beat you know, a very, very good, one of the best defenses of all times. But we really felt like we could handle those guys at that time. But, you know, so I, I, I just think, man, if not for that, I think we would have been, like, perfectly fine with this deal. But that that part eats at you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the Buffalo Bills in Super Bowl twenty seven with nine turnovers, but you guys right. gave them the ball a lot in that game. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it was uh, – Oh, man, just one of those games. I think Rich had five turnovers in that game. Yep. He didn't have five interceptions the whole year. Yeah. And he threw five interceptions in that game. So that just shows you how how off the whole offense was that night. All right, so let's move on to a happier topic then. Okay, let's let's get off the misery of losing Super Bowl 37 and everything that went on because that was a crazy week. Uh, if If you can't have team success, then I guess the next best thing is going to be individual success. 
And there's no doubt about that. You were one of the first few guys after Jerry Rice. By the way, what how great is that? You started your career opposite James Lofton and you finished your Raiders career opposite right. Jerry Rice. Right. I mean, right. that's right. pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, you were one of the first guys to cross a thousand receptions. And and now with the way the game is played, it's like, oh, you're not great if you don't have a thousand receptions. Mm-hmm. Michael Irvin's mm-hmm. in the Hall of Fame with 750. It was a different time, yeah. a different era, yeah. uh, even in the mid 90s. What did it mean to you to be one of the first few guys after Jerry to cross a thousand career receptions? Well, it, it really meant a lot, man. You know, I had played um, throughout my career. I played with 20 different quarterbacks, you know, yeah. and uh, I don't know if anybody will, would, will ever accomplish that feat with that many quarterbacks, you know. Yeah. So I think for me, playing with all the different uh, offensive coordinators, uh, you know, six, seven head coaches, uh, but still being able to get things done year after year after year uh, was was what I was really proud of. And, you know, when it looked like I had a chance to get to a thousand catches, you know, I was really blown away by that, you know, and yeah. to see how few guys had done it at the time, you know, was even more uh, exciting to me. But at the same time, you know, my whole focus was always about trying to get the Raiders to a Super Bowl and win, man. And I think by keeping that focus and, you know, working towards that end, things just kept working out for me. Yeah. And and so you, you retired after the 2004 season with the Bucks, and you had to wait a while till you heard your name called in Canton. Mm-hmm. What, what was, what was that like? Because you can't, it, it's sort of weird with the hall of fame because they sort of stack it against, well, who are the other positions up at this time in this class and mm-hmm. how do they rate against the people here? And at some point you're like, okay, my numbers can't be changing like, you know, I, I right. mean, I can't do anything about it. So why am I why am I in a better position in 2015 than I was five years ago? Yeah, yeah it, it was it was tough, man. We knew coming out because, um, you know, Jerry had went back to play in 05, but he retired yeah. uh, early enough to be considered for the same class. So we knew that, you know, Jerry was probably going to be there was there was talk initially that they were going to take, excuse me, Jerry and one other receiver in with them. And, uh, but then when that didn't happen, we just felt as, felt as if when I say we, I'm talking Chris Carter and Andre Reed that yep. they were going to go, okay, one of y'all go one year, one of y'all go the next yep. year, one of y'all go the next year. But instead they waited three years before they started that, you know what I mean? And I yeah. think those three years is what frustrates, you know, uh, I can say Andre for sure. I haven't really sure. talked to Chris about it lately, but I think that's what really frustrate, frustrates us is, you know, why did you wait three years to do it? I mean, you know, I mean, you knew that, you know, for the most part, the guys, we had to go in. So wh- why wait three Why wait three years before you start with that with that deal? So Chris went in first and Andre and then myself, you know. But, um, you know, look, yeah, at, at the end, and I, I got to tell you this little story, you know, uh, when I get the announcement in the room, Big Dave comes to the room, makes it now, whatever, whatever, you know, and uh, it's it's great. I'm crying. I'm all this. And I call my mom and and uh, tell my mom and my six year old, my uh, my son at the time is 12 years old. He's sitting right next to me on the bed. Listen to me talk. And I make the statement. Uh, hey, it, it this probably should have happened, happened six years ago. Right. So I get off the phone and and he looks at me. He said, hey, dad. You know, I know you're disappointed by going in now, but he said, think about this. This kid is 12 years old. 
He said, if you'd have gone in six years ago, me and his twin sister, Marmar, he said, Marmar and I would not have understood it. But he said, today we understand it. And so I'm like, oh man, now I, now I'm feeling like a, like a, you know, like a hill. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about myself, right? I shouldn't yeah. be, tired. you know. So look, it, everything like you said earlier, man. Timing is always right, and you know, God never makes a mistake, brother. So it's all good. Yeah. And, and and the moment when you heard the news, like, how did it impact you? Uh, you know, you really thought that you would be saying, oh, well, you know, by time and all that stuff, man. Bruh, uh, you know, when you hear those words, you're now in the Hall of Fame forever. I mean, I don't know any man in this on this earth who couldn't, you know, who could hold back tears in that situation because, I mean, it's just like a release of all your, you know, your whole football career, and now it's being accommodated in the NFL Hall of Fame, and it, it'll be talked about forever and forever. Um, look, I mean, that, that's, that's what this thing is all about. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say, you know, people always say, well, did he win a Super Bowl? I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like the hall of fame is not about team success. The hall of fame is that individual excellence. And right, that, right, right, right. that's what gets you in. Like, I hate that. Well, did this guy win a ring? No, that, teams win games, teams win right. championships. The hall that's of right. fame is about, were you among the best to ever do it when you played? And right. that has to be something that, that, that makes you feel pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, you know, look, man, you know, like I said, doing it the way I did it, you know, with literally no help for for many years and no disrespect to James Jed and and my team and some of my teammates. uh, But, you know, when Jerry came, there was a noticeably uh, noticeable different, you know, reaction to how teams, uh, you know, treated us, you know. And um, so, you know, yeah, I mean. Look, I, I am I'm extremely satisfied with my career, you know, when I'm talking about personal personal goals um, and don't really believe I could have done more. Uh, you know, I think I got as much out of, out of my body and out of my career as I could have possibly gotten. Well, it's there in Canton forever, and that's one of my favorite trips to make every year. Uh, why don't we take our, our final break here? We'll come back. We'll wrap things up on this really cool edition of Half Forgotten History with Tim Brown. We're coming right back. What's up, everybody? The NFL playoff picture is beginning to come into focus as we head into the final third of the regular season with Week 13 almost upon us. And if you want to get in on the action, it's real simple. Know the trends, or as we call them, trace trends, presented by Caesar Sportsbook. All right, this week, the Chiefs actually overtook the Buffalo Bills as the favorite to win it all at Caesar Sportsbook. The Chiefs are now listed at plus 400, Buffalo right behind at plus 450. Now, the team that represented the AFC last year, the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, they're still not getting a ton of respect. At Caesar Sportsbook right now, they are plus 1,800 to win it all. Those are the ninth best odds in the league. But one thing we know, Cincinnati's not going to be intimidated when they play the Chiefs in Week 13 in Cincinnati. Why do we know that? Well, this will be the third meeting between these two in less than 12 months. And the Bengals have won each of the previous two. And in each of those previous two games, week 17 a year ago and the AFC Championship game, they were down 11 at the half, held the Chiefs just three points in the second half, and won both of those contests on last-second field goals by Evan McPherson. And by the way, since he comes in on a major role after starting the season 0-2, the Bengals are 7-2 straight up and 8-1 against the spread, but the Chiefs are also on a roll, having won five straight games. If you're ready to place your bets, it's very simple. Download the Caesar Sportsbook app, 
and get started. Must be 21 or over, 19 or over in Ontario. Must be physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Ontario, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, or Washington, D.C. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, Ohio, and Utah, and other states where it prohibited. Know when does it stop before you start. Gambling problems? Well, in Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLING. That's 1-800-426-2537. Or Maryland, visit mdgamblinghelp.org. West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. Colorado, D.C., Nevada, Wyoming, Kansas, affiliated with Kansas Cross Casino. Call 1-800-522-4700. Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Iowa, call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Louisiana, call 1-877-770-STOP. Licensed through Horseshoe, Bossier City, and Harris, New Orleans. Michigan, call 1-800-270-7117. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Ontario, visit connectsontario.ca or call 1-866-531-2600 or text CONNECT to 247-247. Tennessee, call or text TN Redline at 1-800-889-9789. All right, back with Tim Brown on Half Forgotten History. So obviously the rules have changed dramatically in football right now. Um, how many how many more receptions would you have had in the, <laughs> current, in the current way the game is played, and especially the way it's officiated and defended? Uh, you know, I um, a couple of years ago when when Waller broke my catches record at with the Raiders, yep. I was all over Gruden. I mean, joking with him, man. You know, you could have thrown the ball to the fullback a couple of times. You didn't have to get him the ball and all that. You know. <laughs> And um, he said to me, Tim, don't you ever feel slighted uh, by numbers that, that have been put up now? Because if you and Jerry were playing today, you guys will average 200 catches for over 2,000 yards yards yeah. easily. And, um, and in a way, I sort of believe that, you know, yeah. because, uh, the, you know, now I, I understand we played the game the way we played it. And if we were playing today, then we would be playing it the way they're playing it. I get that. But, um, but man, I, I caught 80% of my passes over the middle of the field. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it was dangerous, you know? Yes, sir. I mean, life-ending dangerous at that time, you know? Yeah. And to know today that I could do that with no encumbrances at all, nobody have to worry about it, you know, people taking your head off. I mean, yeah, I think it would be pretty a lot of fun to be playing for sure. Is there a guy playing now that you're like, oh, he reminds me of me? You know, I... You know, you got a lot of taller receivers now, you know, a lot of guys, you know, I mean, Devontae is is a good little route runner, you know. Uh, I love watching um watching him play. I love watching the kid from uh Chicago, number eleven. Mooney. Uh, Mooney. Yeah. My God, you know, I mean, he's a route runner, you know, and you know, I, I can't relate to guys who are six three, six four running down the field, jumping over people's head, because I that wasn't my game, you know. But yeah. uh but to see these guys running routes in the middle of the field and running, you know, corner routes and all that stuff, you know, is uh, is what I like to see. And what are you up to now? Tell us a little bit about the things you're doing now. Well, one of the big things I'm doing, you see, I got all my H2H gear on, man. Uh, a couple yeah. of years ago when I went into the Hall of Fame, you know, I was told that I was only the ninth guy to win the Heisman and be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And since then, Woodson just went in last year to make 10. Um, so, uh, we decided to get together, man, and, and try and do something great. We formed a foundation. Uh, you know, we left an incredible legacy on the field. Uh, let's see what we can do off the field. Um, got together with, uh, with the NFL films, man. We shot a documentary, uh, last year that's going to air, uh, the night before the Super Bowl on Fox, uh, the perfect 10. More men have walked on the moon than have accomplished this feat. So, uh, so you got, you know, you got Roger, uh, Doak Walker, Paul Horning, myself, Marcus, Barry, uh, Tony, uh, Earl, and 
persona non grata, Mr. Yeah. O.J. Simpson, who is <laughs> who is a part of the deal, but not a part of the deal, right? So understood. Uh, yeah, but yeah, so it, it's a it's a beautiful thing, man. That uh, guys, as we've never said in a room before, the the seven of us. Uh, of course, we lost Doke and Paul. Right. Uh, the seven of us have never been in a room before all together, and uh, it was great to be able to hear the stories, man, and how and the whys of how we got here, you know. That that's a great way of framing it. More people have walked on the surface of the moon mm. than have won the Heisman Trophy and gotten into the Hall of Fame. That's that's a flex. Okay, like being <laughs> being in the Hall of Fame is supposedly the most exclusive fraternity. I think you just took it up a notch. <laughs> right, that. right, right. Yeah, it's uh, you know I I was shocked when I was told that man, um, and immediately went to Marcus, who's obviously a really good friend, and he was like. Tim, no way. I was like, bro, it's real. It's, it's really, it's, it's the truth. And uh, so we knew we had to do something with this, man. And we've had companies who want to partner with us and, um, and really, uh, you know, we're going to do some branding stuff, obviously, trying to get the name out there. And, but, you know, the whole goal is to be able to uh, help companies. And, you know, Marcus and I and Charles, we play a lot of golf. We go to a lot of golf tournaments. And to see what some of these guys are doing in their cities, man, is really remarkable. So we may not be on TV giving $100,000 away, but to give twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 to these guys who are trying to do something in these communities is really uh, would be really helpful for them. Well, that's really cool. And, and way to way to spin it to something you can give back to some other people. Yeah. Um, listen, Tim, I, I really enjoyed your career. Always, always love, love watching you play. Uh, thanks for taking the time out with us today on Half Forgotten History. We really appreciate it. Trey, appreciate you, man. Appreciate you. So once again, thanks to Tim Brown for sharing his story, including that unbelievable story about hiding in the closet with chicken during the height of the investigation. Uh, into SMU. Uh, coming up next week, we're going Raider to Raider. One Hall of Fame wearer of the silver and black to another. The first father of linemen in football, Villanova's own Howie Long, will join us on next week's Half Forgotten History episode. We hope to see you then. <laughs>